Today on the Matt Walsh Show, a trans psychologist is now raising concerns about the rush to transition children. He's concerned about it, even though he is still doing the thing he's concerned about. Also, the left continues in its hilarious panic attack over Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter. And a woman celebrates her abortion with a cake and a party. Whatever happened to safe, legal, and rare? Plus, in our daily cancellation, a new poll says that millennials and Gen Z are leaving their jobs in pursuit of happiness. So why are they still so unhappy? We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Walsh Show. You know, when you start, uh, when you speak out in defense of life and in defense of children, you are going to get uh, a lot of backlash and outrage. Some people on the left have been saying that the pro-life people in Texas and the other growing number of states with the Heartbeat Act are no better than the Taliban. They ignore science and biology and refuse to acknowledge that heartbeats are actually a good thing. Insults like, you're the Taliban is all they have left to say. This is why our friends at 40 Days for Life wrote the number two Amazon Christian bestseller, what to Say When, the complete new guide to discussing abortion, how to change minds and convert hearts in a brave new world. 40 Days for Life is based in Texas, and it's one of the largest pro-life grassroots organizations in the world. They have one million volunteers in a thousand cities in 64 countries holding peaceful 40-day vigils outside of abortion facilities to save lives and help abortion workers leave their jobs. You can get the book, uh, What to Say When, today. In fact, I wrote the foreword for it, so that's one reason to buy it. But the, really, the real reason is just a great book, and it gives you all the arguments and all the responses to the other side's arguments. covers the old arguments and the new ones that you might be hearing at work or with family. So get it now and check out 40daysforlife.com to help end abortion wherever you live. Well, many on the right were pleased this week when Dr. Erica Anderson, a clinical psychologist, raised concerns about the epidemic of teens identifying as transgender. Anderson is trans himself, a male who identifies as a woman, and has, um, as his LA Times profile puts it, helped hundreds of teens transition throughout his career. Helped. We've really got to put that word in quotes. But now he has concerns, and we're supposed to cheer him for blowing the whistle, I guess, but I'm not quite in the mood to applaud people like this, I have to confess. Reading now from the Times article, it says, Day after day, emails pour into Erica Anderson's inbox from parents struggling to support their teenagers coming out as transgender. The parents come to Anderson, 71, in part because she herself is transgender. Anderson also stands out because she, again, she is, I'm reading, quoting from the article. These are the incorrect words they're using in the article. Is one of the few clinical psychologists specializing in transgender youth to publicly question the sharp rise in adolescents coming out as trans or non-binary. She has helped hundreds of teens transition, but she also has come to believe that some children identifying as trans are falling under the influence of their peers and social media, and that some clinicians are failing to subject minors to rigorous mental health evaluations before recommending hormones or surgeries. Uh, you think? I mean, some of us have been saying this for years. This was immediately obvious to some of us from the very beginning, and yet it took Anderson years and hundreds of teen transitions before it finally dawned on him that maybe there's a problem here. This is a licensed, trained clinical psychologist. And yet the, the social contagion possibility only recently occurred to him. Back to the article, it says, I think it's gone too far, said Anderson, who until recently led the U.S. professional society at the forefront of transgender care. Quote, for a while, we were all happy that society was becoming more accepting and more families than ever were embracing children that were gender variant. Now it's got to the point where there are kids presenting at clinics whose parents say, this just doesn't make sense. Her skepticism and her willingness to speak directly to the public puts her at the center of America's culture war over trans kids. But this skepticism um, has not stopped Anderson from still participating in the transitioning of children. As the time, Times notes, quote, Anderson's website promises to help you become your authentic self. And her Twitter bio proclaims, working for a radically inclusive world for all transgender people. Some cases are relatively straightforward. After a year of weekly conversations with Liz, a 15-year-old who had no mental health issues and had long questioned her gender before she came out as a girl, well, let's stop there for a second, had no mental health issues and had long questioned her gender, his gender, I think we're talking about a boy. No mental health issues and had long questioned his gender. That, that's like saying, uh, well, you know, he had no uh, problems with his physical health, and also he had lung cancer. Like that, that is the mental health issue. 
But it says that Anderson wrote a letter of support this year for a puberty blocker implant and estrogen patches for this young boy. Apparently, um, Anderson sees himself as quite moderate on the issue, though. As he's quoted, quote, the people on the right and on the left don't see themselves as extreme. But those of us who see all the nuance can see that this is a false binary. Let it all happen without a method or don't let any pass. Both are wrong. Now, the real scary thing here is that, in fact, Anderson does represent moderation in comparison to the rest of his field. The Times mentions how WPATH, which is, uh, stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, proposed new standards of care for kids. And those, the, these are the, the new ones that were proposed in December. And the new standards of care are uh, minimum age of 14 for horm hormone therapy, 15 for chest masculinization, and 17 for genital surgeries. And only after comprehensive assessments showing patients meet the diagnostic criteria of gender incongruence and demonstrate persistent gender incongruence or nonconformity for several years. Okay, so they will still drug kids as young as 14. They'll still chop the breasts off of 15-year-old girls. That's the euphemism, masculinization, otherwise known as chopping body parts off. And they'll still genitally mutilate minors. They're still going to do that. And yet many trans-affirming doctors and psychologists say that even those standards are too strict, not affirming enough. What they want is nothing. They want no guidelines. No standards, no rules at all. Anderson supports at least some standards and thus qualifies as not only moderate, but really downright conservative in comparison to the Frankenstein psychopaths in his field. Or I should say the other Frankenstein psychopaths. Because Anderson, even while raising concerns, has participated in this kind of unthinkable abuse hundreds of times and is still doing it even now, in spite of all of his concerns. Now, I don't mean to downplay or say that it's insignificant for someone like this to come out and concede that there's a problem. It is indeed quite significant. And it should tell you something, that even a trans psychologist who transitions children is willing to admit that there are some red flags here, at least. That's significant. I just don't give him any credit, is my point. It should, again, be immediately obvious, self-evident to anyone with the slightest understanding of child psychology that kids are not mentally equipped to make these kinds of decisions and that kids are extremely susceptible to peer pressure. So if, if lots of minors are all at once making this kind of decision, that should tell you all you need to know. If some of the medical professionals responsible for fomenting this confusion and helping to spread the social contagion are now suddenly concerned. It's not because they give the slightest damn about the well-being of kids. It's because they're performing another medical procedure called CYA in the medical field. Cover your ass. But, but here's the important point. Anderson still obviously affirms trans ideology at its core. Here he is, for example, in a recent video on his YouTube channel, um, giving some advice to, uh, to trans people. Listen. I often talk with my patients about the voice in our head that's self-critical. And what we need to do is we need to address that self-criticism and realize that what we're doing is, is extraordinary. That to live an authentic life as a trans person requires a lot of bravery and not to discount that. And if we do that, if we are really authentic in knowing who we are and believing in our journey, people will come along sooner or later. And not all people will come along, but it won't matter because we're living our authentic life. And that's what's most important. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, really someone you want to go to for your mental health troubles. Now, it doesn't matter how many concerns you raise about the rush to transition children. Those concerns mean nothing if you're still telling the story that we hear in that clip. A story where authenticity can be found by rejecting your true physical, biological, divinely created nature and reaching for some figment, some phantom version of yourself, even to the point of carving up your body to align with it. After all, the whole reason why we should not rush to transition children 
is not that they aren't ready for it, but rather that nobody at any age is ready for it. Because it is an impossibility. We shouldn't rush to transition kids. We also, we also shouldn't transition them slowly or carefully. Shouldn't transition them at all. And even more so, we can't. You actually can't transition kids from one sex to another. You can't transition adults either. But you can drug them and mutilate them. Because you cannot become something other than what you biologically are. The problem with trans ideology isn't that it's too nuanced or too mature or too complicated for children to fully understand. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's false. And because it's false, it is dangerous. Now, if trans ideology were not false, then you could probably make an argument for transitioning teens if it weren't false. I mean, if it's true that a male can be born in the wrong body, if it's true that your authentic self could be something other than your physical self, then why should we prevent teenagers from embracing and living that truth? The argument against transitioning children becomes incoherent pretty quickly, or at the very least, it becomes much, much, much weaker if it's not based in a fundamental rejection of trans ideology as a whole. The entire thing. And that's why someone like Erica Anderson, for as long as he perpetuates the ideology, will always be part of the problem, not the solution. Because there's no middle ground here. There, there, there is no moderate stance. There's no in-between position. This is not a both sides are wrong kind of thing. One side is wrong. It's the side that tells people, whatever their age, that authenticity and happiness can be found in a rejection of their natural self. It's the side that tells people, whatever their age, that it's possible to transition from one sex to another. That, that gender is fluid. That, that's, that's the side that's wrong. That's where all the wrongness lives. Now, over on that wrong side, there, there may be degrees of wrongness. Some are even wronger than others, even more dogmatic in their wrongness, more dedicated to it, more extreme even. But they're all wrong. The whole side, the whole ideology. We have to reject it all, every piece of it. That's the only way. Now let's get to our five headlines. All right, let's uh, start here. It's from the Daily Wire. Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal tried to calm the company's employees during an emergency all-hands meeting today, as they, or this is yesterday, as they panicked over the possibility that Elon Musk will buy the company outright. Um, Agrawal reportedly told nervous employees that Musk could not change the company's culture because no one man can change that. Now, this is, this is significant, but it sounds like he's preparing them at least for the possibility that, that Musk might actually pull this off and, and buy the company. Um, it says, while he is legally limited to what he can disclose about the situation, it's an interesting choice of words, as it appears to leave open the possibility that Musk really may take over the company and turn it private. Um, one Twitter employee tried to claim that Musk... Uh, that what Musk was doing by trying to buy the company for far above market value was like a hostage situation. Agarwal said, I don't believe we're being held hostage. He said, this provides all of us with this moment where we feel distracted, where we feel a loss of control. I am personally going to spend my time focusing on things I can control and that I believe uh, will matter. So they had kind of a oh man, I, I would have loved actually, I wish we had some clips of this uh, this meeting. I, I would have loved to be fly on the wall there to see that. All of the <laughs> Twitter employees panicking, sobbing, crying, comforting each other. We'll get through this together. It's just what it's so great. This is one of my, this story is uh, one of my, this is one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite, this is one of my favorite news events of probably the decade. It's got everything you could possibly want. And as we discussed yesterday, the fact that the man responsible for this, Elon Musk, is an African-American on top of it, just makes it all the much better. Now, um, Elon Musk, meanwhile, was at a, uh, a TED Talk conference, and he was explaining some of uh, what's going on and why he decided to do this. We'll start here. He was asked why he made this offer to begin with, and let's, let's listen. 
Why make that offer? Oh, so, um, well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square, um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Um, and, you know, so one of the things that I believe Twitter should do is open source the algorithm um, and make any changes uh, to people's tweets, you know, if they're emphasized or de-emphasized, uh, that action should be made apparent so you can, anyone can see that that action has been taken. So there's, there's no sort of behind-the-scenes um, manipulation, either algorithmically or manually. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, you hear on the left that they care a lot about inclusivity, and that's Elon Musk's pitch here, is that he wants uh, Twitter to be actually inclusive. I mean, inclusive in the only way that, that means anything, and also diverse in the only way that means anything, especially for a social media platform, which is to you know, allow a diversity of opinion, allow people to express their viewpoints. Um, that's what matters on a social media platform. And that's his pitch, that it should be inclusive. He also says, uh, interestingly, that he, he doesn't care about the um, economics of it. That's not what he's in it for. Let's listen to that. My strong intuitive sense is that uh, having a public platform that is maximally trusted um, and, 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 and broadly inclusive um, is extremely important to the future of civilization. But you've, um, you've described I, yourself. I, I don't care about the economics at all. Um, now, meanwhile, over on the left, of course, the panic continues, and uh, they're, they're very concerned about the devastating consequences to, to speech, and they're trying to dress this up as, well, they're worried about how this is going to affect free speech, even though Elon Musk's whole point is that when the reason he wants to take over is that Twitter is not protecting free speech. So over on MSNBC, they were talking about... Um, talking about these devastating consequences, how bad this is going to be for, for the entire world. Let's hear that. There are sure. real and devastating consequences for using that platform to lie. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it, we've seen yes. it happen. I, I wonder, you know, when talking about this, it's, you know, it's kind of funny, oh, Elon wants, must want, wants to yeah, buy it, but sure. there are massive life and globe altering, altering consequences for just letting people mm -hmm. run wild on the thing. Yes, 100%. But that's Facebook is really the, yeah. where the real action is in that. So that's this is a very small company. People, It has an outsized influence because media people like it, politicians, world leaders, um, and Elon Musk. And so one of the issues is if he's not going to do this, and by the way, Twitter and some of its biggest investors uh, like uh, Prince uh, Al-Walid bin Talal are saying no, and they're putting poison pills in, mm. um, what is he going to do? Uh, he's going to have to somehow unload this 10% stake. Um, and he probably, that's probably what he's going to have to do or raise private financing, which has its own risks, uh, and possible rewards, but a lot of risks for him. Well, I didn't play the sound bite, but he was asked if there's a plan B and he laughed and said, there is, we'll find yeah, out well, what that that's, is. That's what a super villain hero would say, right? <laughs> he thinks he's Tony Stark, right? That's what they'd say. Whatever, however you feel about him, that's what Tony Stark would say. Hmm. Supervillain, devastating consequences. This was uh, echoed by a salon writer, Matthew Rosak. We pull this up. Uh, he, he's. This is this is what he says, and this is not supposed to be a joke. Okay, we we play. We showed you some of the similar reactions yesterday on Twitter from the blue check crowd, journalists, and and everything. And they really do think that this is this is a civilizational catastrophe to have. Elon Musk going Twitter. So Matthew Rosa, who work as writes for Salon, said, if Elon Musk allows Trump back on Twitter, it'll be a death blow to the free world. Trump's big lie will spread like a virus. I discussed the danger of Trump's big lie for Salon. Like, okay. Like Hitler's big lie, it must not be normalized, lest fascism return. So we got, we got it all in there. We got fascism. We got Hitler. The death blow to the free world. That's how much power... 
Trump has, apparently, just by trolling Twitter. And here's the here's the one of the many great ironies about this. Is that the left very worried about what will happen if this billionaire is uh, is able to purchase Twitter. You know, God forbid a billionaire owns a social media platform. It'd be the first one. First time this ever happened, right? But one of the many ironies is that, first of all, these journalists, almost every single one of them, work for companies that are owned by billionaires. Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post. And, but yet the Washington Post, they're among the outlets telling us what a, what a crisis this would be for Elon Musk to own Twitter. And then also, who, who owns Twitter right now? Yes, we, we, don't want Elon, we don't want it to fall into the hands of Elon Musk. We want it to be in the hands of people we trust. People like um, BlackRock, the Vanguard Group, Morgan Stanley, the Saudi royal family. You know how much the Saudi royal family cherishes free speech, right? We know the, the Saudi royal family, they, that's, they really care a lot about democracy. And so that's why we need, to, we need them we need them to keep their stake in, in Twitter so that, so that democracy will remain intact. It'll be a death blow to the free world. It'll be the death blow to the free world if the Saudi royal family does not still own a large portion of Twitter. And when the Saudi prince yesterday said that he's not going to sell, yeah, the left was cheering him on, saying, yes, yes please, please uh, stay invested in Twitter so that we know that we can that it's in the hands of people we can trust. Asset management firms, banks, foreign dictators, are a lot better off with, with uh, them owning it, right? Rather than an African-American immigrant. You damned racists. All right. Um, Ron DeSantis yesterday signed a late-term abortion ban. This has been just a great week. For, for the pro-life cause. We've got abortion bans in uh, Oklahoma and Kentucky, and now in Florida. They signed, uh, this is not an, uh, unfortunately, this is not an abortion ban that covers all abortions, but does cover a lot of them. It's a late-term abortion ban. And uh, Ron DeSantis signed it in front of a, a very excited crowd yesterday and also gave a shout-out. we got to play this because he gave a shout-out to um, Daily Wire and uh, one of our great reporters at Daily Wire. Let's listen to that. Do you see how uh, that type of mindset has uh, led to uh, things that really shock the conscience in our society? We just saw this terrible scandal in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Do we, we, where is Mary Margaret here from the Daily Wire? Where, there's Mary Margaret. She did this great uh, expose. They found all these remains of babies and they found five who were basically infants premature they would have been but they would have been able to survive you know outside the womb and yet washington dc uh is treating that just like we would treat the trash from our lunch or something like that um, it's really horrifying to see that that could go on in our country but particularly in our nation's capital and so that is callous uh, that is wrong, and I want to thank her and Daily Wire for exposing that. Um, yeah, Mary Margaret's done a lot of great work there. Uh, it's also live action, and uh, of course the pro-life activists in D.C. who exposed this to begin with. Now, I said it's been a great week for the pro-life cause, and it has been, um, but on the negative side of things, last week anyway, is... Um, I mean, it's it's the fact that this story came out last week, and already it's been buried. I mean, the, the corporate media buried it right away. They never had any interest in it. But um, it's it's already like a, a, a distant memory. Um, the fact that the fully developed infants were butchered in D.C. and the police are refusing to do an autopsy, refusing to conduct any investigation whatsoever. Um. This is, and it becomes difficult, even if you're on the right side of the issue and you care about it. it it's there. There are so many things going on all at once. You know, one of our, one of our big challenges that we have on the right, I think, it's challenges everybody has. But just speaking about uh, on the right, one of our challenges is is to remain focused on issues that matter. When we have an issue, it's really important to remain focused on, not get distracted by other things. 
Um, so that's not something we can't just let that go. That oh they they're murdering fully developed infants in D.C. and law enforcement is helping to cover it up. We, you don't just let that go and move on. And certainly the Daily Wire, we're not going to let it go. Um, so that was great from DeSantis. Meanwhile, Nikki Fried is the agriculture commissioner, and she's running for governor as a Democrat. And she spoke out about this ban. She was very upset about it. So I want you to re- remember the footage you just saw. Ron DeSantis in front of a, a large, cheering, excited crowd. And here is his primary challenger on the Democrat side. Um, and uh, let's let's watch this. Something very sad that happened today. Uh, moments ago, Governor DeSantis signed the abortion ban in our state. So, uh, that's why we have to win. We have to win because he just moved us back 50 years. I, I, Ron DeSantis has got to be shaking in his boots looking at that. This is a formidable challenge. I counted, what, about 10 people in the crowd there? She's in a parking lot talking to 10 people. This is a, that, that turnout, that makes Biden's turnouts, that that makes like a Biden campaign event look like a Trump event in comparison. So pretty sad. Speaking of sad um, and disgusting and infuriating uh, also, someone who goes by Carmelita Hate, appropriate last name, calls herself a professional slut. That's what she calls herself. And I'm not going to quibble with that description at all. Um, Anyway, she tweeted this viral this week. Abortion is healthcare and also traumatic. So if you do have one, please gather all of your closest friends after to celebrate. Be around endless love and happiness for your decision. Thanks for everyone who came last night. And um, apparently she had a party to celebrate her abortion. And then she has a picture of a cake. And it says originally, it's a boy, but the Y is crossed out to spell uh, it's aborted. And then, you know, people as you might expect, reacted to this um, in a not-so-positive way. And so she res- she kind of responded to the backlash. She says, is it crazy that I posted this? Kind of. But to stop making abortion some shameful secret in people's lives, maybe some crazy stuff is what they need to see. I'm thankful to have such a good support system and good sense of humor to get through the tough stuff. And that's that on that. Eloquent as always. Now, There are a couple of uh, things to note here. First of all, as always, we see how the the safe, legal, and rare mantra has long since gone away. I mean, there there was a time, and maybe if you're a little bit younger, you might not even remember this time, because this this was back mostly in the 90s. You know, when when I'm coming of age and first became introduced to the uh, issue of abortion, back then, the people on the pro-abortion side said that, you know, we, we don't like abortion either. Nobody likes abortion. Um, we just want it to be, we want, we want it to be safe, which is a misnomer because there's no such thing as a safe abortion because it's always killing at least one person. And um, it's always damaging the second person, which is the mother, whether physically, oftentimes physically, but certainly psychologically and emotionally, whether she wants to face up to that damage right away or not. But that's what they said. We want a safe abortion. We want it legal. And uh, we want it to be rare. We, you know, we don't, we don't want a lot of abortions. It's just, um, it's a kind of a, it's a necessary evil. That was sort of the approach back in the 90s. Well, now all that's gone away. Well, legal is still there. They still want it to be legal. They want abortion at every stage to be legal. And they still talk about safe abortions, which don't exist. But um, rare is out the window. Because the problem is, if if you admit that you want abortion to be rare, then you are admitting that there's that it's not a good thing. You're at least conceding that it's less than ideal to be murdering babies, let's say. And they're not going to concede that. And so that gives rise to the shout your abortion movement and all this stuff and people going out of their way to, to celebrate it. You know, e- e- though, even when they celebrate it, you can still tell the truth because she even says uh, abortion is healthcare and it's traumatic. And then she talks about how it's, it's, it feels uh, shameful. It's a shameful secret. Well, hang on a second. How is it traumatic? I mean, why, why would abortion be traumatic? If it's, if it's just a clump of cells, 
If it's not a human being that you're killing, then what's traumatizing about it? And if, if even more than that, you are, it's a statement of your autonomy and your liberty as a woman, then there's nothing traumatic. I mean, I, the, the way that they talk about abortion, it's like, in fact, they will quite literally compare it to um, having a parasite removed. Or you have a tapeworm or something and you go to the doctor and get medicine for it. Or having a, having a cancerous lump taken off of your body. Well, who would ever describe that as, as traumatic? I mean, it might be, it'd be traumatic to have the cancer, but, but you know, being free of an illness, that, that's not a, in and of itself traumatic. Um, so it doesn't make a lot of sense, according to the narrative that they give us. But then it starts to make a lot of sense when you realize that, uh, of course, abortion is killing a human child and that even these women, they, they still know that. That's still in the back of their minds, in their subconscious, and probably not even buried that deep. Because when you see all of this celebration of abortion and we're to throw a party for, our, for the abortion, um, yeah, it's disgusting and it's, it's enraging to see. And um, these people are psychopaths in a lot of ways. But you also have to understand, they're not trying to convince us of anything. They're trying to convince themselves. This is, um, you know, this is overcompensation to a maximum degree. Because, you know, this is, this is the, the truth about abortion that I'm, that I'm always trying to get across, is that, you know, despite what the abortion industry tells women, you can't just go get the abortion and then it's like, what they, t- what they tell the women is it's like, set, it's like hitting the reset button and going back. You, well, you, you, you were going to have a child but um, you decided to get abortion, and now, so now there's no child anymore, and you can go back to how it was before. It's like, it's like turning the clock back. It's, it's magical. It's like resetting, taking an eraser to a chalkboard. But that's not actually what it is, because you are still a mother. You become a mother the moment you, you conceive a child. And so you are killing your child. And now you are the mother of a dead child. And that is the reality that will always be with you. And you could try to stave off the mourning process. You could try to stave off the trauma. Um, You could try to stave off the guilt by going over the top and getting the confetti out and setting off fireworks. But eventually, it will will come through and you're going to have to face it. Okay, two other quick things to mention here. This is from the Daily Mail. It says, two women in New Jersey's only all-women's prison have both fallen pregnant after having sex with transgender inmates. The pregnant women, who were not identified, are housed at the embattled Edna Mahan Correctional Facility in Clinton, which New Jersey governor announced plans to close last year. Prison bosses said that in both instances, the sex was consensual. It is unclear if the women had sex with the same transgender inmate or if it was two different inmates. So already we have we need a Snopes fact check here. Well, not a Snopes fact check because they're not going to fact check something like this. But this is not an all women's prison apparently. I mean, that's kind of cool. that's that's uh, that's that's hard to figure out. It's an all women's prison and and women are falling pregnant. How does that happen? Well, because it's not all women's. Um, Edna Mahan houses 27 transgender prisoners and over 800 women altogether. It is also unclear how far along the two inmates are and whether they plan to continue with their respective pregnancies, whether they plan to continue. There's another euphemism for you. Um, an investigation has been launched. So, there's a women's prison, 800 women, and they already have almost 30 men in the women's prison. And I can also, without, without knowing anything about the, the, the particulars here, and I don't know that I fully even believe the particulars that we're being told, like, we're just told that the sex was consensual. I mean, maybe it was. But listen, there's no reason to believe that whatsoever. You're taking violent criminal men, oftentimes like rapists and sex offenders, who are in prison as men and then one day say, you know what, I'm actually a woman. And they're, they're sexually attracted to women. And so this is all just, just kind of a happy coincidence that now they get to be housed with women. Uh, you're taking them, you're locking them into cages with actual women. 
And then it, if, a, if a woman uh, becomes pregnant, in fact, some of the headlines, there was one headline, it might have been in the Daily Mail or one of these other outlets. It said that uh, two women have fallen pregnant at a women's prison. They've fallen pregnant. Yeah, what are they falling on exactly? That's not, that, that's not something, that, that's a, that's a, something that happens after a particular act. Now, whether that act was consensual, that's my point. Is, is I, I, There's no reason to believe that. Um, because we are not going to be told if a trans male rapes a, a female inmate, that information is not going to make it to us through any official channels. They would never tell us that. I mean, and even if it was supposedly on the surface consensual, when you when you put a, a woman in a in in a prison cell with a violent, dangerous man, and the woman quote chooses to have sex with the man, is is that actually consent? Is there a real choice there? I mean, we we've been told by the Me Too movement that um, if a woman chooses to have sex with her boss. That it's not really a choice. There's not really any consent there, or not as much consent as there should be because of the power power dynamics at play. So you're a woman locked in a cell with a man who could overpower you at any moment, and who is sexually attracted to females, and you have sex with them. Is that is is it even a choice, or is it something these women are doing just out of self preservation? So I don't, no matter how you slice it, I'm not sure how you can even call it consensual. And if they've got 30 male prisoners in, in, a, in a, this one women's prison in New Jersey, um, this is this, you know, we're, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of men who are in women's prisons right now. And again, they're they're violent and dangerous. That's why they're in prison. So as I've been saying for a long time, I, th- this is, um, I, I guarantee you, there is right now an epidemic of sexual assaults by men against women in women's prisons. And it's happening right now, and we will, we will never be told about it, though. Because these women have no way of telling us. And of course, the Me Too movement is uh, conspicuously silent about the whole thing. Let's get now to the comment section. Let's see. The uh, Sean Speck says that title alone probably called for at least two thousand outraged liberals and leftists to scream out loud. So thank you for that. That has made my week. Uh, the title of the show yesterday with the Elon Musk as an African American immigrant. It, like I said, it will, it will never not be funny. Uh, one of the many things that makes this story just so incredible. Um, another comment says your discussion talking through this "what's the plan here" situation when choosing to fight the cops makes it so painfully clear that all of these young men grew up without fathers because your point of view is exactly what any good father would say. I've heard similar things from my own dad. Think things through before you act. Consider the consequences. Use the brain that's in your head. Fatherlessness is literally killing people. Well, of course it is. It's killing lots of people. It's killing um, the the people who grew grew up without fathers. It's killing the people who those fatherless criminals then go on to victimize, killing a lot of people. And you're exactly right. I had the same thought. Because as a father, I'm I'm constantly having this conversation with my own kids. They do something that doesn't make any sense, and I have to sit them down and say, okay, what what were you hoping would would happen here? Walk me through the steps. That's what you're supposed to do as a father. It's about imparting just a little bit of common sense. Because it turns out that common sense doesn't, um, especially for kids, doesn't always come naturally. You've got to kind of condition them into common sense and being able to think rationally. And um, being able to think, like being able to think through an action where you say, okay, I'm going to do this and here are the potential results of this particular action. That's not something that kids are naturally good at. They need parents there and I think especially fathers to walk them through it. And then if you have kids who never get that because they have no father at home, then they grow up. And uh, next thing you know, as happened with the most recent BLM martyr, you know, he's stopped by the police. 
he runs away. And the next thing you know, he's in, he's in this, this hand-to-hand battle with the cops, and there's just nothing good that can come of it. There is no positive outcome imaginable. Even if you're able to fight the cops off and run away, when they catch you, you're going to go to jail for longer now. But the moment you start fighting the cops, especially if you're grabbing at their weapons, even if it's the taser, your chances of now being killed in this um, interaction have just increased tenfold. And you know what? It's, it's it, 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 an unwillingness or inability to think through your actions and use some common sense. But I also think at a deeper level, uh, you find people who, who, who just, there's this despair there. They, they, don't, they don't see their life as having any value. And so if the Black Lives Matter movement could serve any purpose at all, and if it actually cared about black lives, it, 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 w- it wouldn't be screaming at us. Like, you don't need to scream at me that black lives matter. I know that. I never said anything otherwise. But instead, maybe you should tell that to someone like the most recent BLM martyr who was, uh, you know, uh, who was killed while, while fighting the cops. Like, that's a message that he needs to hear, needed to hear, before it was too late, about himself. Your life has value. You know, value your own life. Protect your own life by not making these kinds of decisions. Self-destructive decisions. Um, let's see. Jason says, love the show, Matt, but I feel it's time for a little constructive criticism. I'm sure you're right about Dr. Oz and the position he holds. But that felt like a lack of context. Um, was that video you played with Justice Smollett pre the facts coming out? Did he change his tune afterwards? Felt a little judgy to me. Just saying I don't like the idea of bagging on the guy, who admittedly I would likely despise as well, using a video that I'm guessing was before the juicy scandal blew up and no context as to where he stands now. Yeah, he's referring to, uh, uh, of all the damning video clips you can play of, of Dr. Oz, it's just the, the latest one to resurface was him after... Um, the Justice Millette hoax was perpetrated, him, him supporting Justice Millette, talking about what a great guy he is. Well, first of all, it, 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 speaking of common sense, it was obvious to anybody with common sense immediately that that story was, was false. Um, and, and also, Dr. Oz is running for office now as a politician. So there's no being, yeah, judgy of a, of a, a political candidate, sure. You know, that's, there's, I don't think it's possible actually to go overboard in our skepticism towards and um, criticism of political candidates. Oftentimes I think we go the other direction or we're not skeptical enough. So you want to run for office, then you have to endure that kind of criticism. Especially when you have made a career over, um, sending false falsehoods out into the world. The only thing about that Jesse Smollett clip is like, there, you know, we don't even need to focus on that because of, I don't think we need to get past the fact that the first clip we played last week of, of Dr. Oz endorsing trans kids or abortion or gun control or any of the rest of it. And yet he still got the uh, Donald Trump endorsement, of course. Well, as you know, the Daily Wire is intent on changing the culture, which is why we're actively changing it in literally every way possible. And now... We've started our own publishing wing called DW Books, and we're proud to publish books that actively fight the left's monopoly on storytelling, like Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America by Julio Rosas, who pulls back the curtain on the Black Lives Matter riots and uh, the movement that broke out across the country in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Rosas, who was uh, reporting from the ground, gives his firsthand experience and exposes the media's attempts to convince Americans that the fatal and destructive riots were peaceful. Check out the trailer. The media gaslit the American people for all of 2020 as the riots unfolded. They did not give you the full story. I was there. George Floyd, Kyle Rittenhouse, Rayshard Brooks, Chaz in Seattle. I saw all the riots with my own eyes. Windshields being smashed, giant rocks that were being thrown. Businesses that were starting to be looted. The crowd started to become hostile. All the cops were trapped and surrounded. Police were being ordered to to retreat. I experienced the the tear gas. I experienced the smoke. This was very real to me. The mainstream media, they were trying to call them protests. CNN with that Chiron saying fiery but mostly peaceful. 
They're trying to push a narrative of don't believe your lying eyes because they were trying to appease that very dedicated Antifa movement that's there. When you read my book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, you will get the full story. You will learn what actually happened during the riots of 2020 and what the media did not want to tell you. Buy my book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, everywhere books are sold. The book is available for pre-order on Amazon or anywhere you buy books online, so go pre-order your copy today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Recently, for the daily cancellation, we spent some time dumping on boomers after Jeff Foxworthy tried to blame the younger generations for the existence of participation trophies. And as I pointed out, the boomers label millennials the participation trophy generation while neglecting to mention that they, the boomers, are the ones who invented participation trophies and gave them out. In fact, the boomers invented almost all of the terrible things that are ripping our society apart. Things like veganism, the internet, the sexual revolution. I don't know if boomers actually invented veganism, but I'm blaming them for it anyway. But today we're going we're gonna to take the always enjoyable generational blame game and move it over to the younger set this time, Gen Z and millennials, my generation, technically. Though from a spiritual and emotional perspective, I'm really more of a disgruntled 85-year-old hermit who lives in a hollowed-out tree in the woods or something. I don't really identify with my generation. And this Yahoo News article reminds me why. Here's the headline. Gen Z and millennials are disrupting the workplace as they're choosing to be jobless rather than work for a company they don't like. Now, there are different ways to be a disruptor. You could be the Elon Musk type of disruptor, doing new and bold things, challenging the powerful institutions, innovating. Or you could be the kind of disruptor who disrupts by standing off to the side like a useless lump and scratching your ass while everyone else gets the work done. Sadly, many in my peer group and younger have chosen the latter course. So the article says, quote, Gen Z and millennials are unique when it comes to demanding a work-life balance. They don't just want flexible work hours and environments. They want to work for companies that align with their own personal beliefs and values. And almost half of Gen Z and millennials would rather be unemployed than unhappy in a job, according to a new study. The career goals of Gen Z and millennials are changing power dynamics in the workplace. Almost two in four members of younger generations would prefer being unemployed than work in a job they don't like, according to the study. Most of the young people surveyed said they preferred to work at companies that shared their personal values. Two in five Gen Zers and millennials said they they would take a lower-paying salary if it meant that they were purposefully contributing to society. Diversity and inclusion were also important to the survey respondents. 49% of Gen Z and 46% of millennials said that they wouldn't work for a company that didn't make diversity a priority. A uh, priority of Gen Z and millennials is their own happiness. In fact, 56% of Gen Z and 55% of millennials said they would quit a job if it interfered with their personal lives. Now, there's obviously nothing wrong with wanting to work for a company that represents your values. I mean, in principle, that's a very good thing. The problem is in the perverse and stupid value system that so many of these people want companies to align with, as evidenced by their insistence on diversity and inclusion. Um, aside from value alignment, we're also told that millennials and Gen Z demand a better work-life balance, and that they would rather be unemployed than unhappy at their jobs. And this, this is where the real problems arise, I think. First of all, if you're a young person today, or even an old person, the balance you should be worried about is not work life, but screen life. We're told that young people don't want to work, don't want work to interfere with their personal lives, but almost every waking hour of their personal lives are wasted staring at screens anyway. I could have more respect for the desire for work-life balance if you were going to home to be, you know, with your spouse and children, or you were um, uh, trying to leave yourself time to engage in a productive hobby like woodworking or gardening or something. But the fact is that for many of these people, the lives they're trying to protect from workplace intrusion are hardly lives at all. There's something quite morbidly ironic about a man screaming that there's more to his life than being a wage slave, only to discover that the only thing he wants to do is scroll through TikTok and binge Netflix. Second, even leaving that issue to the side, the more fundamental problem with the work-life balance idea is that work and life are not two separate things. Life is work. It's a symptom of our privilege and entitlement in the modern industrialized West that we can even consider life and work as two distinct categories. Talk to anybody outside of that bubble about their work-life balance, and they'll have no idea what you're even talking about. Because life requires work. Every life is sustained by work. So when the self-righteous millennial or Gen Zer turns up his nose and says, I'd rather be unemployed than unhappy working. The question is then, who will be doing the work to sustain his existence. 
Whether you're happy or not, the fact of life is that your life requires work. And if you refuse to do it, somebody else has to. So who's that going to be? Your parents? Johnny taxpayer next door? Maybe a combination? Whoever it is, if you are not, you are not living a, a life free of the work requirement, nobody can. You are rather living a life where that requirement has been offloaded to somebody else. You've made someone else your slave, in effect. You don't want to be a wage slave, so someone else is going to be your slave. There's nothing, nothing noble about that. It's entitled. It's selfish. In fact, it's evil. The refusal to participate in the difficult aspects of your own life is evil. It's a shameful thing. Third point. We hear that um, all of these younger people are prioritizing their happiness, focusing on their happiness, giving up work for the sake of happiness, pursuing happiness, thinking about their happiness, talking about happiness, obsessing over their happiness. And yet, shockingly, so few of them are actually happy. There have never been people who, who, who talk so much about happiness and yet feel it so, so little. Isn't that interesting? Millennials and Gen Z are, are at once the, the most focused on their happiness and, and yet also the least happy. Perhaps there's a lesson there which we might consider finally learning at some point. And the lesson is that happiness cannot be conjured out of the ether like a magical spell. You can't will yourself into it. You can't convince yourself to be it. Happiness is a byproduct of a well-ordered, well-situated, grounded, virtuous, productive life. That's the only way to achieve sustained happiness. You can find pleasure outside of that. You can you know, go to a back alley somewhere, buy some black tar heroin and find some pleasure that way, I guess. You could derive pleasure from an extra-large fast food value meal or a $3 hooker. But you won't find happiness any of those places. And you won't find it in a directionless life free of work, free of challenge. Spend staring at screens while somebody else provides for all of your many needs. As it turns out, life and work cannot be severed, and neither can happiness and work. It takes work to be happy. You have to do difficult things. You have to exert yourself. You have to give yourself over to some cause beyond yourself. Happiness comes then as a side effect, often when you least expect it, and always when you aren't thinking about it. You simply fulfill your responsibilities. You live your life. You do your work. And one day you look up and you say, wow, look at that. I'm, I'm happy. That's how happiness works. You only find it when you stop looking for it. This is one of the fundamental facts of life. And it's something that both the Gen Z and millennial generations would do well to learn. Until then, they are, of course, canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Talk to you on Monday. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey, everybody. This is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Claven. <laughs> 